0: Beautiful! Beautiful! Every color is powerful! Every color is worthy! They
1: tried to bury us! They didn't realize we were seeds!
0: They didn't realize we were seeds!
1: We were
0: seeds! We open doors so others can walk through them! Your legacy is every life you have ever touched.
1: I'm Stella Saliari, and this is SALT the Podcast. Welcome to SALT the Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Nina Gutierrez, a young adult full of empathy who loves spending time with friends, working out, writing, journaling, and traveling. In this episode, Nina tells us her story by speaking her truth, which was not always easy for her, but now it has become simple, and in its simplicity lies a power, the power of transformation, setting her free from the pain she endured and into her new life. The title of today's episode is Collective Care Matters, and is a reminder for us all that taking care for one another, seeing each other's vulnerability, is revolutionary. Because by protecting each other, practicing community, and acknowledging our interdependencies, we practice a form of protest that breaks existing injustices and can make a change on this planet. Welcome, Nina. I'm so happy that you're here with us today.
0: Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm also super excited. been a while. <laughs> yes, a long time.
1: So let us uh, hear a little bit about you. Who is Nina? Share some things about you with yes. us.
0: So the the first thing that I normally say is where I'm from, because it's kind of a mix. Uh, My mother is from Hungary. My father is from Costa Rica. They both went to the United States for a little while. And then my brother and me came out and turned that into a longer stay. From there, I moved to Hungary and then to Costa Rica. And now I'm currently in Amsterdam. So Nina is a person that travels a lot i have a lot of love and appreciation towards other cultures i really love speaking to people and learning from their stories as well so your podcast has been very nice and i'm really happy that i can share my experience as well
1: nice thank you so much nina and yeah actually you already kind of shared a few things about yourself um, on my podcast through a blog post a while ago yeah. and that's when I said wow okay I would love to make it into a podcast episode and um, yes today um, is, is a bit of a different topic that I usually cover and it's uh, about your health and it's about your journey and it's about somebody <laughs> called Didi
0: yes <laughs> so
1: I think we should just start speaking about her and yes, um, yes just share with us let's speak about Didi
0: So Didi is the name that I gave my pacemaker, or it was given, actually. I had to get a pacemaker implant four years ago after being sick for 15 years. It was a sickness that was very hard to pinpoint. It took many, many trial and errors. I went to several doctors. No one really knew exactly what was wrong and the last 5 years of my sickness basically i had everyone telling me that it's psychological that it's all in your head you're making it up you're just being dramatic and tired and you know they they were they were basically telling me it's all in your head when i knew that i had real physical pain so my problem was basically that as soon as i turned 7 years old every time i would stand up still for more than like 5 minutes i would end up fainting and as time Went by, it just got worse. It came to the point where showering, I would feel like I was just going to throw up. I would pass out. Sometimes I would be in bed for like five days trying to recover from an episode. I would miss university a lot, skip classes, social events, basically anything that would imply standing up for anything, for a line, ordering food, concerts. It was just completely banned from my life. And it Came to a point where I can share a bit more later of, of how that was discovered, but I basically got the news that I had to get a pacemaker immediately because it was actually too late. Like my heart was overworking for too many years and it was a miracle actually that I was still alive.
1: Yes. Yes. And Nina, I mean, now you, you, you summarized summarize that very quickly and
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: yes, the 15 years you use or even more. Um, yeah. summarize them very quickly, but I know from conversations we've had and from the blog post that you wrote that mm. it has been a very, very challenging time of your life. Not yeah. only the fact that you were sick, that you were physically um, in pain, but also the fact that you didn't really know what was going on, that you didn't yeah. have people around you who would believe you. And yeah, you you would hear this phrase, but you don't look sick. Yes, and, exactly. Yes, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about that because, okay, I, I will I will talk more about it later. But I think it's important that we talk a little bit more about this.
0: Yes, that has always been a very big frustration for me because, if you know me, you know I'm I'm a very thin person. I could look athletic depending on what your criteria is, and I just look completely normal. You know, I I look like a completely normal person. If you think of normal being a a box and the problem with me was that, you know, I I did require special needs basically. So I do remember clear scenarios where I would be on the bus and feeling like I was going to pass out. So I would take a priority seat because it was empty and then an older person would come on the bus and, you know, I clearly knew that I needed it because if not, I would just throw up or pass out or go through a very bad time. So it it was that kind of thing of, do I deny my seat? Do I stay here? Because it doesn't look like I need it, but I know I need it. And I clearly remember this one day that I was like, no, I I just physically can't move right now. I need to sit here. And everyone on the bus started uh, making all of these rude comments towards me. And I remember I just called my mom and I spoke to her in a different language than where I was living at the moment. And I was just asking her of like, oh, what's for lunch? You know, I, I didn't even tell her what was going on. And then I could hear the people uh, in the bus saying like, oh, she's not from here. She doesn't understand. She doesn't know she's not allowed to sit there. But for me, it's the whole struggle of, you know, I, I don't know what I would have preferred then, you know, what I would have preferred to, to look how I actually felt inside. So I could be given what I thought was like a privilege or a priority based on how I felt. Or should I be grateful that I can hide something so big? Because throughout university, also, you know, I always had to present standing up. And I would always ask the professors to please let me sit down. And half of the time, they wouldn't let me. And whenever they wouldn't let me, I would throw up on the first row of students. And then after that, they would let me. But it's the whole thing as in like, you know, you look like, a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 15-year-old whenever my episodes were happening. And I, I just felt like I was not getting maybe the attention that I needed because there was no external evidence of what was going on inside. And yeah, I do remember at some point there, it was so bad that I was offered, you know, like if you want, you can have a wheelchair and use it sometimes whenever you feel like it. Like If you want to go to a concert or to certain events, it, it can be an aid for you. And I remember just being super proud, you know, like I was like, no, I I don't want it. I should be allowed to simply just sit down when I need to and ask, you know, can you help me? Or if I'm in the bank, yeah, I'm not pregnant. I don't have a two-year-old and I'm not 60 or above, but I do need also that space. And it was a whole conflict, you know, like a mental battle with myself, basically, as in like do do I want to show the world how sick I am? Do I want it to be obvious because I would be treated maybe differently, but then there's this whole scenario, this whole situation of the invisible illnesses, you know, of like people like me that we look like we're fine, we're healthy. We actually even look, you know, thin for our age or whatever, but inside we're struggling so, so much to keep up with everyone else.
1: Yes. There, there's a lot in, in what you just shared and, I want to unravel it a little bit more in a bit, yeah. but it also shows, and you mentioned it, the, the norm, right? Our society mm-hmm. is so norm-based. It's so binary. It's like yeah. young and old, <laughs> sick and healthy, visible, invisible, woman, man, like everything is put into boxes everything is a binary there's nothing in between and this is something that I hear from what you're sharing with me and this also something with this podcast that I want to contest that there are no such things as as binaries and we need to to break them and that's why I find it really important that that you speak up because it's not Mm. obviously in your case it is about this illness but it's it also shows how our society is structured and as you said maybe if I had looked I don't know. Pregnant, <laughs> like my body would have been different. People would have treated me differently, yeah. or all these kind of of different things. Yes, and it's also. I mean, we discussed that before, and uh, you said you you do not use the words disability um, mm-hmm. for uh, what you have, and uh, I I don't want to put this this. Uh, I don't want to use this term either, but yeah, you also said earlier that you were disabled in the sense of you couldn't do certain things and it's also it also shows when people hear disability um, I think a lot of things that come to people's mind will be a blind person a deaf person a person in a wheelchair that will be the first image while there are a lot of disabilities that we cannot see Mm -hmm. um, there are disabilities as a result of of war that Mm -hmm. people get disabled and people get disabled from an accident so it is something that somehow can affect us all and it's not always something that, that you can see. And I think this is really, uh, your story really shows that. And it really shows us that there is a lot of work to do because Mm -hmm. for so many years, people didn't believe you. And let's say your, your, your classmates didn't believe you or the people on the bus didn't believe you, but I think the doctors didn't believe you.
0: Yeah. I, I really think that that was the worst part. Uh, Now I can compare it as in basically I felt that for the last 15 years at that point of my life, I was living in a black mirror episode because even inside my family, you know, I love my family to death and I know that they love me to death also, but they really never did an effort to take me to a hospital. So I started looking for the cure by myself because I started working at 19 in a company and. In my first week, I was in a meeting and I wrote down on a piece of paper to the person next to me like, oh, I think I'm going to throw up. So I'll be right back. They gave me time and space. But what actually happened was that one of my episodes were coming. So when I arrived to the bathroom and I locked myself in, I actually passed out and I was locked inside a bathroom. And they were like, do we look for her? Do we give her time? She said she's Mm. throwing up. And they didn't know anything of what was wrong with me because I didn't know what was wrong with me. So I never shared with them that these things happened to me. And a week in, the company told me like, no, this is not normal. We need you to go to the hospital. You have insurance and do whatever you need to do to find out what's wrong. Wow. And that's when my journey began when I was 19 to actually Go to doctors because, as you said, you know, whenever these things would happen in, in elementary, high school, university, they would just leave me lying there, you know, because these episodes could last thirty minutes or they could last three days, and it was kind of like, oh, you'll be fine, A stomach virus. Uh, I was always very skinny when I was growing up, so they thought maybe it's anemia or she's just weak, you know, her body can't take it. Or at some point it was like, maybe she's just being spoiled and she doesn't want to participate in the civic act. That's why she's like throwing up because she knows she can sit down. And when I started the journey at 19, it it was with cardiologists and they would try, they would try to see what was wrong. They started sending me medications that of course were not for me. And then that started giving me stomach issues, throat issues, skin issues, hair loss, up and down for my weight and since every single cardiologist could not find out what was wrong then they would say you know i think i should just refer you to a psychologist cuz i think it is mental they they could they would just resign to treating me or doing any more exams they would basically give up because they were like i think it's your heart but i just can't find what's wrong so it has to be your head you know and this went on i probably went to 12 cardiologists for 4 years for all of them to tell me at some point, even to my face, you're crazy. Because of course, I would go into a new cardiologist, tell them my story. And I would end up crying, like frustrated crying. And then they would say, like, I think you're just stressed. You know, you're having a conversation with a stranger and you're just bawling in my office. And I'm like, because I'm I'm looking for answers, <laughs> you know, like no one is giving me answers. and basically what what had to happen to like find out what was wrong is that I was showering one day in my house and I came out of the shower and I called my parents because I couldn't feel the half of my face and half of my body was just paralyzed and it was basically like okay did did I just have a stroke I couldn't move like it was like my body was cut in half half of my tongue was slurring not (laughs) like not responsive I was twitching when I was trying to blink and my hands were just completely curled up, like cut off with oxygen. And they rushed me to the emergency room. So many tests were done, four hours of tests. It was already 2 a.m. at this point. And they just had no idea what was going on. And this doctor, he was like a 19, 20-year-old college student. He's like, sorry, I've been listening to the whole thing. Can I interfere? And, you know, all of these older 50, 60-year-old doctors were kind of like, sure at this point whatever you know and he's like I think there is something wrong with her heart but I just think it's the electricity and it was literally like a light bulb switched on everyone's face they were all looking at each other blankly you know like if I tell them oh did you know this color is white like if I discovered something that is so obvious but for some reason it was missed and indeed, like they said, it's it's two it's two a.m. in the morning. The doctor that does this test is not here. Come back tomorrow. I went, and they basically told me, uh, "You did not pass. You failed. <laughs> you ethically failed, and we need to operate you immediately." Like this is this is not okay. They were like, "I almost died during the test. It was a physical test where I just had to lie down. They would tie me to a table and just." put me in an upright position to see what my body would do. It's called a tilt table test. It's the most basic, non-scientific, non-invasive test in the world. And in 30 seconds from lying down to putting me in an upright position, my heart rate went down to 20. And it was almost like they needed to lie me down or I was just going to die. I, I don't even remember. I just woke up because I had an like alcohol in my face because they were trying to wake me up because I just simply passed out something that i was like that's it you know like that's all that was the only test that had to be done to have people believe me that something was wrong with me you know 5 minutes of my life versus 15 years and i remember like i i was so happy when i got that pacemaker i wanted to like go see all of my previous doctors and show them you know like i was not crazy like something was wrong and you completely neglected me and it was it was even taboo to talk about it i i do remember like the first year it was kind of like let's not share with certain family members or let's not talk about this in public or even professors from university were kind of ashamed because for the first 3 months i had to wear like tank tops to expose the wound so it could like heal and i remember walking into university or into the office you know and basically like showing like yeah this is what was wrong with me you know and and it's real. And I I just felt neglected, you know, by the actual people that were supposed to help me, that were supposed to heal me, or even this was a wound in my family as well. You know, for me, as I said, disclaimer, I love my parents, but it, it was very hard for me to understand. Like, if you had a sick child, why why did you never do anything about it? And I, I never really had this super honest conversation, but out of some The first year with my pacemaker was very hard because I did put a lot of blame on them. It was, you know, I I remember telling them, like, if you would have done this, if you would have done that, if you would have taken me here. And the first year I was very angry, you know, like angry with everyone, happy because there was a solution. But I was like, how is it possible that in five minutes, one simple test that was zero invasive, you know, no blood, nothing that it it, that's it you know for me it was kind of like it was it was living like in an episode of black mirror where I'm trying to defend myself against the world and everyone is telling me you're crazy you're crazy you're crazy it's just in your head you know nothing is wrong
1: yes and then when they find what it is (sighs) you still have to be quiet about it and you have to hide your scars so you don't show them in their face what has happened this is so typical i think for survivors of i mean i'm i'm i don't know I, I can use a lot of words in your case medical violence or medical negligence or i don't know we we you know but also when you look at survivors of sexual assault um survivors of stalking all kinds of things we are always have to be the ones we have to be quiet don't talk too much about it you know yeah. don't offend anybody what will people going to think it's like as if we have to think more about the perpetrator or the society or the reputation instead of our well-being and yep. um yeah and I think it's amazing that you walked into that office with the tank top with your scar showing people this yeah. is what it is and I'm not crazy and I think it's yeah. great that you that you speak up and that you can contextualize things the way you do.
0: And I think part of it was also that you know I I was ashamed of it because when I was little, it was embarrassing mm-hmm. because I would be in school throwing up on all of my classmates. And when you're a seven-year-old, that's funny. And then when I was in university, I was always ashamed like because you know I would have to call someone to pick me up. And then I was like, oh, again, like why does this keep on happening to you? This is so inconvenient for us to have to help you. So it, it became something that I just didn't share with people. I would hide it when the doctors asked me, you know, they're like, how have you survived so long? Like you should have passed out and broken your head many years ago. And I said, because I just learned how to control it. Like there's a feeling in my neck, there's a specific nerve that starts to like cut off the oxygen at some point. And that's what would make me pass out. And it, it just became like blinking for me, like a feeling that I know, oh, if this feeling happens, this is what's going to happen to me. So I learned to put on my makeup, I have to sit down. To shower, I have to sit down. I can't drive. I can't run. I can't jump. I can't I can't all of the normal things. So it, it kind of became like a secret as well, because whenever I would go to a party, I would have to have a stool sitting with me everywhere. And when I finally got the pacemaker, it was actually a shock for everyone, because they were like, but how? How did we not know you were sick? How did no one tell us? And in my family, like when people started finding out, they were like, but when, you know, they were like, when did this happen? How did this happen? Nina, but Nina's always been into sports and into fitness and so happy or whatever, you know, and I was like, well, I had to hide it because no one believed me. So instead of having people shut me, shut me out, I would just avoid it. You know, I would avoid going to places or sharing about it or It, it, it was just something that I learned how to hide and control. And when I finally knew what was wrong, people were just in shock. They were like, I would have never, ever thought about it. And the people that have been there in my episodes, they were like, oh, thank God. You know, they were like, finally, there is something that's going to make it stop. There, there, There has been a lot on your shoulders.
1: And Nina, just for the audience, maybe you can explain in easy words, What was happening to your heart and why uh, is the pacemaker helping you? Like, why was that the
0: solution? So after so, so many years of being sick, you can say basically my heart has all the possible problems now, (laughs) but the main problem, like the, the trigger of everything is that my heart does not understand what my body is doing. So when I would stand up, my heart would shut down. And when I would lie down, my heart would decide to run a marathon, for example, but that would cause two main things. So if I would try to go to sleep at night, I couldn't sleep. My nights were very restless because my body would be alert as if I would be running, but it was also pumping so much blood and I was not moving that I would get a lot of body pain. But then when I would stand up, for example, during my day, my heart rate would drop to like 20. And what that causes is that The blood does not circulate upwards because it wasn't like pumping strong enough, which would made my brain not get oxygen. And then that would just be a snowball effect of your body. When you don't get oxygen, you throw up, you pass out, Um, the circulation in your arms starts to cut off. So your hands start curling up. Um, It's a terrible leg pain as well, head pain it it really just feels like someone is sucking the life out of me. And thankfully, in my case, it wasn't like I would just pass out in a second. I, I would actually feel it coming. Mm. So yes, that is basically what I have. The scientific word, if anyone wants to look for it, is neurocardiogenic syncope. So it's basically a combination of the brain, the heart, and lack of oxygen. Wow. A lot
1: in your life or Most part of your life has resolved, or have not resolved, has evolved, revolved, evolved around, yeah, finding out what's wrong with me, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Now you are, let's say, the 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 question mark has been moved away. The doctors finally found out what it is, but now it's like four years ago that this happened. Yeah, four years ago.
0: Exactly four years
1: ago. How do you? build a new life like how do you because you're yeah i i don't know i i can imagine your your identity was about okay i have something i don't know what it is i need to hide Mm. it i need to control it you were nervous if you were going to a club giving a presentation feeling maybe neglected hurt disappointed then you know what nina has but how does nina do after that like
0: So, yeah, um, after that, it's been divided in two phases. So the first phase was anger and wonder. So I think the first three months I was because I was still in bed rest because of the surgery. I had a lot of thinking time and I was super upset. You know, it was kind of like, oh, if I would have, you know, the first time I remember perfectly the first time I passed out, I was seven years old in a civic act during the national anthem. And I passed out. And I was like, if that day, you know, they would have done something about it, I might not be here right now. And I might not have lived this, this race for 15 years, you know. And so those first months was kind of like very just angry and, and who to blame because I knew it's not my fault. But then it's kind of like, what if it is my fault? So it was a bit of that struggle. And then I remember the first time I I was strong enough after the surgery to leave the house. The first thing that I did was that I went alone to an anime convention. (laughs) And I went alone because I remember having to go to those conventions with my friends because I needed someone to carry my backpack, someone to stand in line for me, someone to buy my food, someone to bring my food, someone to spot me in the bathroom in case... I would lock myself in the bathroom, you know, so I was kind of like, I will go to a relatively big social event completely alone. And I remember for the concert, I was like, Oh, I like this song. I'm going to stand up. And I remember just standing up, you know, still, because for me to kind of avoid fainting, I would have to move around a lot, sit down, squat, you know, try to get my blood moving. And I remember just standing still, you know, and the first months the wounds, everything is still tender. So I could feel the fake heartbeats, very sensitive, like very present because the electricity is basically going through a wound. So I could really feel it in my chest. And I was just standing and I was like, okay, it's been 10 seconds, five more seconds and I should pass out. And then I feel it, you know, I feel it hitting me on my chest. And I was like, wow, (laughs) you know, like this is, They say, what this is what it feels like to just stand and enjoy. So after that day, it was basically, I want to do everything. I was like, I want to start running. I want to start jumping. I want to go to concerts. I want to travel. I want to go to every single small, big, mundane or anything that I can go to. So I remember that first year, there's a big mountain in Costa Rica. If there's any Costa Ricans listening, it's Chiripo it's the highest point I believe in Costa Rica. And it's kind of like a whole warrior survivor thing of like three, four day, no internet upwards, downwards. It's like the, the thing to do in Costa Rica. And I said, in nine months, I'm going to climb that mountain. And two weeks before I had to climb that mountain, I had to get the second surgery. And still I said, I'm still climbing up that mountain. I had to sign all of these waivers. I was only allowed to go. <laughs> if I had a paramedic with me, like I literally had a paramedic <laughs> shadow with me. I was the last one up the last one down by a huge time gap. I remember by the time I got down, like four days later, everyone was waiting for me at the base and they were just like clapping. Cause they're like, finally, and she's alive, <laughs> you know, like it, it was that, that first year, two years, it was just eating the world, doing everything I could, you know. But then uh, after I moved here and I start living normal life, phase two is the frustration. You know, it's, it's a bit like, ah, uh, at this age, at 26, I always thought I was going to be married, having my second kid, you know, and kind of like, if I would have never been sick, I probably would have been able to have a normal relationship with someone who wouldn't have to consider all of my things as a burden. And I would have been able to move to Europe when I wanted to and finish high school and university when I wanted to. And this, this last phase where I find myself still stuck in a little bit is kind of the okay, I had a plan and that plan didn't work because I was so caught up in the happiness and the wonder of like all the adventure of like, oh my gosh, I can do all these normal things and more. And now I'm kind of like, okay, I've done everything. (laughs) Now what? So it is a bit of kind of like a discovery because as you said, you know, and, and as we had a conversation a couple of nights ago, my whole life was basically okay, survive, find out what's wrong, make enough money because I thought something big was coming, as in a surgery, and indeed, when I find out I need a surgery, most of my savings went there. And and yeah, now I'm basically in the phase of like, okay, what do I like to do? Do I have any hobbies? Do I have any passions? Is there anything that motivates me, you know? Like my drive was surviving. And now it's like, I, I still need to survive, but in different ways, not such drastic ways. so what what do I like now? So yeah, life life after the surgery was happiness and flowers and all of this, and now that you know reality hits, it's kind of like, hmm, I, I guess I need to rediscover myself completely at 26. <laughs> so if anyone has any fun suggestions, please shoot them my way. <laughs> I'm willing to try anything <laughs> at this point. <laughs>
1: I can give you many if you want. Oh, First of all, you. there's always more. You still have not done it all. There's still a lot that you can do. Secondly, yeah. I don't think you should have kids at the age of 26 and definitely not two. And- I mean, you know,
0: this, this comes with a reason. The thing is that my mom had me and my brother by 25 and our relationship was very good because of that. And I think I just aspired that, you know, because I see my mom and she's still so young in a way, you know, like I can do so much with her. And I really enjoyed the relationship with my parents and I still do. So that's my disclaimer right there. <laughs> <laughs> there, is re- <laughs> there is a reason. There is a reason.
1: And it's kind no, of like, I, I, yeah. I'm sure there is a reason, but you know, I, yeah. have, I have quite a few kids. and um... <laughs> A few. <laughs> for and <laughs> I think like I don't know if I look at my dad he he was 42 when I was born so he's now mm. 82 but he has been such a cool dad and I think we kept him young and of course I have to yeah. say my mom is also much younger than him probably she also kept him young and she takes good care of him but I don't think you should think in those ways like you shouldn't think yeah. in boxes, or I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that and of course I think it's it's normal that you did because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure I would have done the same. It's it's a phase, but yeah. I think you have a lot, a lot coming your way. Like there's still so Thank much you. to do and so much to explore. And of course now with COVID it's a little different, but yeah, <laughs> really, just right now, because when I hear your life, it has been like such a battle, such a marathon, um, mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. And also when you got healed, then, of course, you want to do it all. I would have done the same. But maybe now is the time to be still, be still yeah. and go inwards, you know, and just listen. Oh, yeah. and, and a see. lot
0: of that has been happening. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh I don't know. I would see it as as a moment of I'm good now. I'm healthy. I have something that mm-hmm. helps me and I'm looking at whatever is coming with, with. Yeah, I'm excited about it, you know, mm-hmm. and life never goes according to plan. So plans never work out.
0: Yeah, I began <laughs> that's to learn at least that. what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I begin to realize that.
1: And Nina, who has been your soul? Who has inspired you? Or ah. is still inspiring you?
0: Yes, I would have to say um, my best friend, who's also my soulmate, as we like to say. <laughs> yeah, he has been a person that, you know, since day one that we got reunited it's basically a person that shows me of like so much love and forgiveness and empathy and really motivates me, you know, like, just, just keep on going. Don't give up, keep on going. And yeah, this, this person for me is just, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of a person that really changed my life for the better because after my surgery, you know, when I said that I was still in this anger phase, It it came to a point where I was kind of like, I, I just want to give up at this point, you know, like this is, this is not fair. It's, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. Everything that I wanted to do was just taken away from me and ripped from me without my permission in a way. And I remember when this person saw me again, they were just like basically slapping me in the face. Like, no, you need to pick up the pieces because this person knew me 13 years ago when everything was fine. And then we met again after seven years of not seeing each other. And they were kind of like, I I can't believe that you want to give up at this point, you know, like after everything you've been through, after every hurdle, after every obstacle, you know, you need to stand up and pick up your mat and just walk, you know, and, and the battle, the, the mental things that have happened after that, it was kind of like everything that I didn't live, in certain other aspects had made me mentally a very non-forgiving human being Mm. and I wasn't even aware of it you know I I had so much to forgive parents friends Doctors. doctors and I was still holding so much so many grudges and this person basically just inspired me you know like you need to either internally forgive all of them. You can tell some of them you forgave them, but your life will not have any salt, any flavor, any happiness if you don't just like leave everything behind and, and continue going forward. Yes. So yes, that, that person has been a pillar to who I was and who i become today.
1: Beautifully said, because many times we actually have to forgive for us to move forward, you know, it's not about the other person Mm is, is for us. You have to forgive so you can get rid of that anger, the bitterness. And obviously it's a process and then you can step into whatever purpose you have, you know, or passion
0: or desires. Yes. Yeah. It's literally like, like it's been told to me by a lot of people. Like it's, it's like you're drinking poison, but expecting someone else to die. You know, mm-hmm. and maybe that person is completely oblivious or even yeah. unaware that you still hold a grudge to that doctor that told you 17 years ago, this, this, and that. Like, they don't even remember your face and you still have them present every single day. But
1: you know, Nina, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. I, I Like, we've all been there and, and that's okay, you know. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to whom do you want to pass the salt and what do you want to say?
0: I would say to all of those people um with invisible illnesses, because I do feel like we don't get enough recognition. Yeah. Because I feel like it's not talked about enough. People don't know about it enough. And to all those people, you know, I would like to say, like, just just keep on going, you know. And as I wrote in in the the blog that you mentioned, you know, it's kind of like It can be that your journey is one year. It can be that your journey is 15 years. And I think it really just depends, you know, if what life wants to teach you or how much character it wants you to build or how much impact it wants you to create. So your time will come. Just keep on believing in yourself and it's going to be okay. Thank you, Nina.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I know this, um, oh, I'm very touched um, I know this has been a difficult conversation for you and um yeah, we took our time to have it. And uh, I'm I'm very happy that you talked about it because I know that it will help people and not only maybe not people with um with your exactly what you had with your heart, but I know there are people out there in my circle who have um fatigue syndrome, um yeah. who have eating disorders, who have all kinds of different things, and um, I think um, what you shared with us today will touch them, and also people who who don't have anything. You know, we should a- also look around and see how do we treat others. Do we believe what yeah. other people tell us? Do we believe their stories, and and how do yeah. we treat them? You know.
0: Yeah, I think empathy plays a huge role. Yeah, because I remember sometimes in my hiding age. I would go to with friends to like, I, I perfectly remember once I went to Burger King with a couple of people and we were walking up the stairs and I took like 10 breaks, you know, and they're like, how is it possible that you look so fit, but you're like in terrible shape, you know? And I was kind of like, how easier you know, would it be if they would have just said, are you okay? Yeah. Do you need anything? Can I help you? You know, and partly it's my fault because I wanted to hide it, but at the same time, Instead of making certain comments, you know, if if you see someone in your life that's just taking life slower than it seems they should be. And as you say, like some people are just very tired and it's actually a real thing. Maybe just ask them, you know, like, are you okay? I've noticed this. Can I help you with anything? Sometimes we just want to talk about it, but we don't know how. Because we don't know if that, if I tell this story to this person, are they just going to believe me or dismiss me or encourage me, you know? And unfortunately, at least in my case, 90% of the time, it was not the result I was expecting. First, I don't think it was your fault at all.
1: And I think it's just how our societies, it is. What I said earlier, we have this norm and we are Mm -hmm. judged by our productivity, by how much we are not a burden. Yeah, I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: there are certain phrases that I really like, and and I try to use them even more, just by saying to people, "I see you, mm-hmm. I hear you, I feel you, I'm yeah. here." Yeah, and I think that's Sometimes it. that's I it. I see yeah. you, you know. I see you. I see your pain, and I'm here. Yeah. And yes, thank you, Nina. Thank you. Stella. Now you can ask me a question. <laughs> to yeah. Yes, I asked you so many things tonight and uh, I really appreciate your honesty.
0: I think my question for you is, I know, of course, that you've met a lot of people and you've done a lot of podcasts and also for your personal projects as in like masters, you need to interview a lot. But has there ever been one person that really like opened your eyes to a situation that maybe you yourself are unaware of and that you say like wow that really touched me in a way I was not expecting
1: um every episode to me is special and Mm -hmm. um every person that I talk to yeah I I I choose them they choose me we choose each other I don't know and it's always um yeah because obviously of course we have questions as you know that um we work together prior to the to the conversation but then other questions come up. So I'm always learning something. I always get inspired. I'm always coming into these conversations with what's going to happen today, you know, like I'm, I'm open to the unexpected, but so what the, the podcast has done. And because I think I have people like you coming here, sharing uh, things about mm-hmm. their life and uh, also sometimes we have difficult conversations like the one today and I always feel um I also have to share something because I don't want to be this okay first of all I don't call it an interview I call it a conversation what we have is an encounter Mm -hmm. and um I also feel like I also have to share something I'm not superior here just asking all these questions (laughs) to to publish a podcast and that's why I have this last question that I always tell my 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 people what do you want to ask me and One of the um, people I spoke to in one of the episodes, she uh, suffered for many years from an eating disorder.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, she, when I first met her, she had actually told me about it. That was prior to my podcast. And I was like, my God, she can just talk so openly about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, then She was mentioned at different encounters. And um, then I did another episode with somebody who um, was a survivor or who is a survivor of stalking. And in that episode, I honored Audre Lorde, who I love a lot. Um, She has inspired me a lot, uh, and I'm still discovering her. And one of the things that she was saying is that your silence will not protect you. So we Mm -hmm. have to to speak out what you did today. Sometimes we are silent and we're actually protecting the perpetrators. Um, Sometimes Mm -hmm. we're silent and we swallow everything inside of us, you know, and and we get sick of it. Or we want to protect our families or our traditions or whatever. And I was thinking, how can I preach about your silence will not protect you? I have to speak up myself. So when I spoke to that person that uh, shared about the eating disorder, I shared Mm -hmm. on on the podcast that I've been suffering from an eating disorder for more than 20 years. Mm. so it was also a little bit in line to what um you were sharing today that there are things that we hide and then we develop Mm -hmm. certain mechanisms so that others don't realize right of course my case is completely different from yours but um it is also a um a disease an addiction that we Mm -hmm. don't openly talk about it's stigmatized it's uh, attached Mm -hmm. to shame it's attached to many things um Mm -hmm. I uh and I had also my strategies you know like oh, I've already eaten or I have this I have that you know so the podcast also had has made me speak out my truth and share it with others because I think only through that we can make a change only through that we can we can break narratives we can break the stigma the shame and um we don't allow people to characterize us you know to tell us you are this no I'm this and I know who I am and you can say whatever you want about me. I know who I am, you know, and this is my story and this is, uh, yeah. So this has been, yeah. W- one of the things that have inspired me through the podcast. I hope I answered your question. Yes, <laughs>
0: yes you did. Indeed.
1: Yes. I just think we have to talk more about things. And yeah, uh, I, I have to, I, I I have to be part of it because this is what my project is about. And Otherwise, nothing will change. So, mm. yes. Perfect. Thank you, Nina. We should finish with a little bit <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the brighter side. And, and you know, just also you being here today, it will open a door to something different. I, I already know it. These are all the steps that you're taking to your post-surgery. Maybe we should not even use that to your new life, <laughs> you know, that you're already living. So, um, yes. And tonight we honor Frida Kahlo. I discovered her when I was 15, 16, and I fell in love with her right away because I was probably also in a lot of pain, and she was a mm. rebel like me. There were a lot of reasons why I fell in love with her, and uh, that never stopped. Mm-hmm. And um, I was amazed by her paintings, by yeah, the, the power she had inside of her, and reading her thoughts and discovering her paintings for me was, was an intense emotion because she goes straight to your heart and despite her suffering and pain in life, she, she is still today a, a moving force. And uh, for me, yeah. a great example of courage to us all. And I want to finish with a quote from her that is a nice one. Nothing is worth more than laughter. It is strength to laugh and to abandon oneself, to be light. So I want us to finish with a,
0: you're smiling. Yes. <laughs> with a Yes, I, I a highly smile. agree with that. <laughs> it's a good way to end this.
1: Yes. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for thank you. speaking up, for taking the thank time you. to speak with us. And of course, I will share some of your photos on Instagram and your details. And thank you to everybody for listening Feel free to follow me on Instagram, under Solve the Podcast. Feel free to contact Nina if you have questions. Of course. And yes, I love to hear from you. So thank you so much, everybody. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Saliari, and this is Solve the Podcast.